What's up, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, make sure you subscribe because I'm splitting $10,000 across 10 lucky subscribe beautiful bastards this month. And let's just jump into it. I need you to understand that my job is harder than yours. Do you feel that anger right here in your chest? <laughs> That's what I felt this morning when I was trying to find messy TikToks for you, but instead I got this. Content creation is harder than your nine to five. You really don't know how much hard work goes into creating multiple videos a day. Being constantly creative with new video ideas, trying to make footage look good, getting new shots, taking many many takes over and over, it can get to be a lot. So yeah, I'm tired. And I spent a few minutes going through the account and I was like, okay, is this is this guy just baiting me? Or is he just this disconnected from reality? Also, to clear the air, your job is not harder than a nine to five. And I say that as someone who for a decade was constantly told to get a real job before people started seeing YouTubers as a real thing. And as someone who has been fortunate enough to exist in this space for the last 15 years and have had so many jobs. I worked in fast food, I worked as a server, I worked in retail, I worked for a cleaning company, we roughed houses, we, what else did I, oh my God. I worked in a call center, specifically escalations, and that's just people yelling at you. My job now has hard moments, but to say that it's harder than a nine to five, that's so fucking stupid. And furthermore, this makes me think about two things. One, I currently worry about some of Gen Z content creators and many more moving forward in the future who don't have regular jobs first before they jumped into content creation and maybe had success there. I think that's a key part of being able to relate and connect with people and not be like this artificial thing. And two, if you're in this content creation space and it's not even remotely fun, or once you even get even a little bit established, you don't feel like so privileged. Hopefully soon you will realize how lost you are. Like the most I'll give you is that there are some hard things that we experience that are not relatable to other people, but they're still so easy compared to some nine to five that's probably draining you of your soul. And actually I was talking to editor James here and I think he, he put it kind of really well. One of the main problems with content creators or really any entrepreneur is that it takes time to figure out a work-life balance, especially when everyone's spouting like hustle culture, this and that. So you get people that work themselves for like 12 hours when they could have made a product that was 97% as good after like three and then to try to justify that shitty management, you're like, my job's harder. And then, once again, this is anecdotal. I asked my producer, Corey, I was like, am I off base here? Am I missing something? And the message he sent to me was so amazing. He said, when, when I had my first job out of high school, I had a woman throw a half-eaten hamburger in my face and force me to sniff it because she thought it was burnt, even though our burgers were advertised as charbroiled. And I couldn't say no because management told us the customer is always right. <laughs> he closed it by saying, at least with the news, even on the hard days, I'm still passionate about it. And no one makes me sniff their lunch, which is the funniest and saddest sentence I've ever fucking said out loud. But all of that also kind of makes me think about PewDiePie. He just put out a video recently where he talked about, you know, how he retired, but he still hasn't stopped posting videos. And to paraphrase and then kind of build on to what he's saying, like, we're all so fortunate to be able to do this. And maybe a lot of us old timers on the internet, we have this mindset because a lot of us created before there was even the prospect of getting paid. And it's important to remember for people that have been doing it for a while, but hopefully people coming into it also have this mindset that you're wanting to connect to other people, that they're not just numbers that then turn into dollars. He says right before showing posters that you're gonna be able to buy next week. Ooh. Ah. I love it. You know, having a community and doing stuff and creating things that hopefully entertains them or informs them or, or just has some sort of impact on another human being and maybe hopefully yourself. And even for the people that are like, content creation is harder than a nine to five. If it was, you wouldn't probably be fucking doing it. How righteous of you to sacrifice your desire to work at a nine to five so you can make videos about what it's like to make videos. And I truly hope we don't see more of people like this or people like this to kind of like reconsider or, you know, reevaluate their lives. And instead, with the rise of platforms and short form video that I think has brought in a lot of new creators, especially more niche creators, like people that just like love a specific thing. Hopefully that gets us more homegrown and, and grounded 
uh, creators. But also, this is the Philip DeFranco show. There's me, and then there's you. I'm sharing my opinion, and of course, now I wanna know yours. Am I off here? Am I wrong here? Let me know what you're thinking. We need to talk about this disgusting mess out of Mississippi. Because we've got former NFL quarterback Brett Favre, best known for slinging footballs almost as fast as he allegedly slings unsolicited dick pics into women's phones, in the news. Because if you didn't know, he's actually been in hot water for a few years now for his alleged involvement in a Mississippi welfare spending scandal that wasted taxpayer dollars to build a volleyball stadium at the University of Southern Mississippi. It's his alma mater, it's where his daughter played. And there are a lot of moving parts here, but I'm gonna try and break it down and simplify it for you. And all you really need to know at the top is that it involved Brett Farr, then Governor Phil Bryant, Nancy New, who is a friend of the governor's wife, and the former head of the welfare agency, John Davis. Right, so you have all these motherfuckers, and it's believed that this fraud cost taxpayers over $77 million and largely centered around Davis heavily abusing the funds. But very notably, well over $5 million of that money was used by Davis, Favre, and New for this volleyball facility. It's a pretty boy had asked how to secure funding for this project, and New, who ran a nonprofit, was asked to figure out ways to spend money provided by the Federal Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Fund outside of public scrutiny. And things actually went very smoothly until anonymous tips came into the governor's office that Davis was likely engaged in fraud, leading Bryant to release him and bring a new director on board. But by then, it was all going to shit, with New eventually being brought up on a long list of felonies and then agreeing to work with prosecutors as part of a plea deal, which is how we know so much about this now. And that's in part why we're talking about this today. There were a ton of new text messages revealed in court documents earlier this week that blow a hole in Favre's claim that he didn't know what was going on. Right, Favre wanted this volleyball facility built, and two schemes were concocted to fund it. The first was having news team fill out a series of grant applications for this welfare money under the guise that it would be used to lease a wellness center. And the whole leasing of a center was an important aspect as the federal fund that they were accessing had a prohibition against using the money for new construction projects. So millions of dollars were committed to the project, and payments began to be sent out. And Favre knew that a new facility would cost way more than the few million being promised so far, so he and New concocted another plan to get money. Favre promised to spend $1.1 million dollars of his own money for the project. But in reality, he was getting paid by New and her nonprofit for speaking engagements. And her nonprofit got that money from the welfare funds. Also, Favre never actually spoke at any event, but still has long denied any wrongdoing, claiming that he didn't know where the money was coming from and that he would pay back the money, which he actually did that last part, minus the nearly $220,000 in interest. But things then got a lot worse for Favre and the gang. When Bryant replaced Davis in 2019, Favre began asking questions about whether or not things would work out under a new director. And this is where it becomes crystal clear that Favre wasn't just some innocent person trying to get funding and being duped by Brian and New. In newly available text messages provided to prosecutors by New that were published in court on Monday, we know that Favre was actively involved. For example, regarding that $1.1 million speaking engagement money, Favre was apparently the person who came up with a plan in 2017, telling New in a text that, quote, I could record a few radio spots and whatever compensation could go to USM. And he later addressed his concerns about being caught, asking New, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? With New responding, no, we have never had that information publicized. I understand you being uneasy about that, though. Let's see what happens on Monday with a conversation with some of the folks at Southern. Maybe it will click with them, hopefully. And the text going on to show that Favre was relieved when he found out that Bryant was on board, too. And Favre also clearly knew that the grant requests for funding from the Mississippi Department of Human Services were fraudulent, as Bryant had to coach him in what to put in the request so they'd be approved by the agency's new head. So to that end, Favre forwarded this text from Bryant to New. Hopefully, she can put more details in the proposal, like how many times the facility will be used and how many child will be served and for what specific purpose. With Favre later texting, I really feel like he's trying to figure out a way to get it done without actually saying it. And the craziest thing out of all of this is the fact that this volleyball facility is just the tip of the iceberg in how much welfare money was wasted, especially when you consider that Mississippi denied 90% of all applicants. As it appears now, we know the reason why certain things were selected and others weren't. Also, what might be even crazier is that while New and Davis were brought up on charges, both Bryant and Favre haven't yet faced any repercussions for their part in the volleyball facility scheme. Which again, to be clear, is the single largest fraudulent purchase made with the nearly $77 million in stolen funds. And right
right now it's unclear if we're actually going to see any charges brought against Bryant or Favre. Right, on one hand, the state attorney on the case once tried to subpoena documents related to the stadium from Bryant, but that seemingly cost him his job as he was fired shortly thereafter by current Governor Tate Reeves. But, on the other hand, more information from court filings in July gave further evidence that Bryant was involved, allowing state prosecutors to subpoena texts from Bryant. Something that his attorney didn't want to do and demanded a protective order likely to make sure that they didn't get out to the public, which in the end resulted in only certain hand-selected texts being turned into court. Although, on the plus side, the governor did not fire an attorney for trying to do their job this time, at least yet. And once again, all of this is horrible, but especially happening in a fucking state that has, I think it's the worst child poverty rate in the country. They're like, welfare, help poor kids? Nah, volleyball, bitch. But from that, I want to take a second to thank the fantastic sponsor of today's show, Squarespace. You know, I've been partnering with Squarespace for years now, and I have to say that if you're getting your business off the ground or creating a place to share your homemade goods, new favorite hobby, current obsession, or even a personal blog to get all those thoughts out of your head, no matter what you're doing, Squarespace is there to help. And it's so easy. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And creating a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in-one platform has never been so simple. It's extremely intuitive and easy to use. And with mobile-optimized websites, your content automatically adjusts so it looks great on any device. Plus, with Squarespace, you get access to all their marketing tools and analytics and their award-winning customer care team via email or live chat 24-7. So if you want to check it out, see why so many others love it, see if it's right for you, go ahead and start your free trial today over at squarespace.com slash phil. When you realize you love it, make sure you enter an offer code phil to get 10% off your first purchase. Socialism! Dun, dun, dun! That is, I think, a term that like has lost a lot of meaning in the past five years. It feels like more often than not these days, it's just kind of like thrown out as the boogeyman word uh, to scare people away from anything that helps poor people. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because during the pandemic, the government did quite a lot. From stimulus payments and the expanded child tax credit to eviction moratoriums and expanded nutrition assistance for kids, with two analyses of census data now shedding light on the effect. And spoiler alert, it was a massive fucking success. First up, child poverty was cut in half during the pandemic. If we go back to 1993, 28% of children lived in poverty, with that decreasing to just 11% in 2019, and then shrinking to a mere 5.2% last year, the lowest number on record. And this decline occurred across all 50 states in DC and across all levels of poverty, as well as across nearly all subgroups of children, including black, white, Asian, and Hispanic, single parent and two parents, immigrant and non-immigrant, with the causes varying. You've got general economic improvements, such as low unemployment, more single mothers entering the workforce, and growing state minimum wages. But according to one analysis, the driving factor was the expansion of government aid, now including the earned income tax credit, social security, unemployment insurance, and nutrition and housing assistance, with all the temporary pandemic relief measures also contributing there. But also, uh, another way to look at this, and it's how my brain works, and it's why I'm your bringer of sadness, despite the progress, our idea of success as a country right now is still 8 million children living impoverished lives. And it's well documented the effects on their long-term development and economic prospects this has. And that's without counting all the people struggling just above the poverty line, which many have pointed out is extremely low. Just around $29,000 for a family of four given typical living costs. And there's an expectation that things are going to get worse again. But it appears that much of the progress was erased as pandemic relief lapsed with the expanded child tax credit expiring at the end of last year. Though the, the vast majority of Democrats did want to prolong the expansion further. Or they wanted that as part of Build Back Better, but you had the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, and reportedly telling colleagues at the time that he was concerned families might use their cash payments to buy drugs. There's also that headline uh, that people might abuse paid leave to go deer hunting. So as a result of that lapse, we saw nearly 4 million more children falling back into poverty at the start of this year. And so now we're in this kind of just fucked situation where we're like, oh, all this pain and suffering, it's not inevitable. There's so much that's actually preventable if we just choose it to be. Thank you, baby Jesus. There are no more elections. No, I don't mean Trump finally got his way, at least not yet. Rather, what I mean is that yesterday was the last set of primary elections this year with contests in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Delaware. A whole damn six months after the first primaries kicked the season off and less than two months before the midterms. That's right, it's almost November, bitch. Start coming up with a voting plan. But before we get to those midterms, we should talk 
talk about those last primaries, especially since so many eyes were on the crucial swing state of New Hampshire, because there you have a very, very important Senate race that's been widely viewed as one of the most competitive contests and one that will decide control of the chamber. The seat is currently held by Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, who won six years ago by literally just around a thousand votes. And while she easily won her primary by a massive margin as expected, the Republican race was much, much closer. And there, like many of the other races we've seen this year, it pitted the Trump faction of the party against the more moderate bloc. And while as of recording, that race has technically not been called yet, this morning, the moderate candidate Chuck Morris conceded to his far-right Trump-aligned opponent, Donald Bolduck, who, just as a little fun fact, has promoted, yes, Trump's election lies, as well as other conspiracies like COVID vaccines having microchips in them. And Bolduck's win is very, very interesting because Republicans threw a lot of money at this race. Right, not only did the moderate candidate have the backing of other powerful establishment leaders in the state, a super PAC aligned with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell also pumped more than $4 million in this race to stop Bolduck from winning. But also, very significant here, Democrats threw a lot of money at this race as well, but they did it for the election-denying Trumper, which is a shocking thing to hear if you don't normally watch the Philip DeFranco show. Or like we've talked about before, Democrats have been spending millions and millions of dollars on far-right candidates and Republican primaries because they think that those candidates will be easier to beat when it comes to the main election because no one fucking listens and learns. I understand the concept, but it's a dangerous fucking game. We've seen how fucking dangerous that is. Remember when you had Democrats pushing for Trump in the primaries because they were like, look at this fucking joke. What a layup. What, just because we give crazy a megaphone, people are going to follow it? And in fact, what we're looking at now, according to a brand new analysis by the Washington Post published just this week, Democrats have spent nearly $19 million in primaries across eight states amplifying far-right candidates, with $3.2 million of all that going just to ads promoting Bolduck. And this wasn't the only race yesterday where Democrats platformed a far-right candidate. The party also spent the much smaller but still significant amount of $100,000 on ads boosting a Republican who has backed election fraud conspiracies in a competitive race for a House seat currently held by a Democrat. With that race officially getting called for that far-right candidate just today. But also, that wasn't even the most closely watched House race in New Hampshire. Because yesterday, voters also chose a far-right candidate in the primary for one of the most competitive House seats in this year's midterms, and one that Republicans have some of the best chances of flipping. But yeah, ultimately, that is where we are right now, and, you know, we'll see in two months how this gamble works out for Democrats. You know, just uh, an incredibly consequential election that uh, could affect the future of the country. So yeah, uh, keep paying attention. Make sure you don't miss key deadlines or registration and voting by mail, and keep encouraging your family and friends to vote. Except maybe your Aunt Carol. But ultimately, that is where that story and today's show ends. Thank you for watching and being subscribed to my daily dives in the news. For some more news you need to know, click or tap right there. But as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.